Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to that 90s baseball pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that 90s baseball pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have eParade, which is reasonably priced, trendy kitchenware. That's E-P-A-R-E dot com. Promo code 10T90BP10. So that 90s baseball pod, T90BP, with 10 on either side. Symbol.app, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L dot app, is the stock market for sports. If you use the promo code Bender, you get a free week of Symbol Gold. Hinterland Coffee in Minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week. Monthly subscriptions get 10% off. Go to hinterlandmn.com. Three-star sports cards, you can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show Good day, good day. It is another episode of That 90s Baseball Pod. I'm your host, Brandon Warren, and you can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore W-A-R-N-E. And across the screen, across the audio dial here is Mr. Greg Olson. Greg, how are we doing? Good, Brandon. How are you? Not too bad. If you hear any squeaks and squawks, I have the dog locked up upstairs. And so hopefully Rocco keeps his, uh, his, his cake hole shut. Uh, how's, how are things going with the little one with you? Uh, I believe Crash, you said his name was? Uh, we went with Tank. Tank, even so, better. Even better. Yeah. Everything's been good. He, uh, he ate some, uh, I think, snake or some poison yesterday. So keeping an eye on him today. I can't let him out front or back. Yeah. They keep telling me that my dog's eating rabbit poop. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. <laughs> Not to belabor the point, but we do have a very fun guest today. You may remember him as a Texas Ranger. You may remember him as an MLB agent, or you may remember him for the hashtag she gone, Mr. <laughs> Jeff Fry. Jeff, how are we doing? I'm good, Brad. How are you? Hey, Appreciate not too bad. 
Yeah, you bet. Thank you for making time for us. And I hope everyone listening and participating is highly caffeinated and or hydrated because we're going to talk strictly about how much better baseball is today than in the 19th. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun today, though, because you guys both played um, largely in the 90s, and we're here to talk about the 90s. And so I kind of want to ask you guys um, some things of, of, of what you guys saw in that decade and how things changed. Uh, people can follow you on tw- Twitter. The, it's the letter O and then three and then J Fry, correct? Yeah, and that was not by design. I think when uh, <laughs> I, I set up my account probably 10 years ago and never used it. And then I, when I went back to log in, I was like, well, why in the hell did I do a capital O and then a three instead of <laughs> zero and a three? So <laughs> I have to explain that to a lot of people. But yeah, that's it. Capital O three uh, J Fry. Got it. And Greg's on Twitter too, at Greg Olson 30. Make sure you get the double G's at the end of the first name. Um. You hail from Oklahoma. You've got a lot of Oklahoma in your blood. And so it's nice to have another guy in the central time zone talking to us. Can, can you explain to us what your journey was like going from high school to college? Because um, as near as I can tell, you weren't drafted out of high school and you really had to, to grind your way to eventually being drafted in, um, in uh, 88, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 88. Yeah. Same years as Mr. Or, was that the same year as you, Greg? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was drafted in '88. Right. Yeah. Well, I was. Uh, I moved to Oklahoma from California when I was a junior in high school. Okay. And so I, I had gone to two different high schools in California, one in Oakland, one in Hayward, and then moved back to Oklahoma with um, my aunt and uncle, their four daughters, and my grandparents, because my grandfather was. Um, his health was declining. And so they decided to move my grandparents to Oklahoma uh, to take care of them. And I lived with my grandparents. So I had to uproot from the Bay area to Panama, Oklahoma, a town of 2000 people uh, with one stoplight. And so that was a little bit of a culture shock. Um, But I did graduate from Panama high school and uh, was actually going to junior college to play basketball out of high school. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Not uh, five, five, 135 pounds. You must've been able to either uh, facilitate an offense or, or shoot it a uh, little bit of a, uh, I don't want to be rude, but Muggsy Bogues in your game, maybe. Yeah, I could shoot. I could shoot. And that was before, I don't know if you played basketball in high school, high school, Greg, but we didn't have the three point line. Nope. And we did not. Those 25 footers were two points. <laughs> and that's about <laughs> as close as I could get. Well, uh, and you, you've been a man before your time, uh, your entire career, because when you played in the big leagues, you took a, a fair number of walks before that was truly appreciated, at least in terms of once Moneyball came around. And so, yeah, um, Southeast Oklahoma State, been a few guys come out of that college, but uh, going in the 30th round, what, what did they tell you when you signed and you're a 30th rounder? Because obviously we've got Greg here who did not go in the 30th round, but uh, very high in the first round. And so obviously expectations are different and, you know, you, you're going to have to claw and fight. And uh, I props to you. You did that because you hung around in the big leagues for a, a nice career. What, what do they tell you coming out as a 30th rounder? Uh, they told me how much my signing bonus was. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and they didn't tell me that till after I, signed, you know, well, I seriously? signed my contract wow. and, uh, as a senior. Oh, you know, wow. Uh, 
and uh, Jimmy Dreyer, the scout, says, uh, did they tell you about your signing bonus? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, you get $2,000 for signing. I was like, nice. You know, I, was, I had never made $2,000 before. But they never really <laughs> gave me any, any uh, idea of what I was about to experience. You know, it was just the opportunity to go play, and that's all I wanted. Greg? No, I, 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 want, I want to go, you know, um, Jeff, I, I wrote a book on major leaguers' favorite baseball stories, and I probably need to hit you up if I do round two. Um, but I, I want to do one that's like minor leaguers' favorite baseball stories. Give us, give us a minor league or two or three, or as, much, as many as you got. But you know, right? I want to. I want to. Everybody's got such great stories from the minor leagues, or actually, when we played in the '90s, when we didn't have cell phones and and didn't have everybody watching us. Um, it was a lot more fun, you know, so you got any good, uh, minor league stories. And Buck said that too. Buck Showalter, we had on a few weeks ago said he thinks they had more fun in that era. I agree. I mean, thank goodness we didn't have cell phones, <laughs> you know, we'd been in big trouble. Some of the foolish things we did back in the day, but I mean, we had to find ways to entertain ourselves, you know, yeah. and, and when you're making 11 bucks a day, uh, meal money. You know, <laughs> there's not not many many things you can do, and you know, one of the things we did is play a lot of cards and probably drank way too much beer, you know, and and, and just basically hung out with each other. And um, but I, you know, people talk about the minor leagues that it's a grind and it's this and that. I didn't see it that way. For me, it was the time of my life. It's like huh. I get to play baseball and get paid. You know, I'd have played for free. You know, yeah. we did our whole lives till we got to that point. And I, I never looked at it. I see people now referring to it, these young kids that are, you know, teenagers, you know, the grind, the grind. I was like, how's it a grind? If it's not fun for you, why are you even playing? Amen. Yeah. You know, it was fun. <laughs> I loved every day to go to the shithole field in Gastonia, North Carolina, Sims Legion Park where the showers weren't even hot and I didn't care. We were playing baseball, man. That was like the dream come true, you know, 2000, yeah, you played, know, well, 2000 played appearances in the minors. You, you know, you can trust this guy's uh, opinion of that. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, you, you, you mentioned that field and I've run through the, you know, some of the crappy fields that I've played on in the minor leagues. And the thing is you don't know any better. Hmm. So it's like, you know, coming to Auburn's great place, but we, we, you know, we had a locker room in the basketball Coliseum and it was like just a normal locker room. So you go to the next place and it's like, okay, this is a clubhouse. It doesn't smell very good, but you know, I kind of got my own locker and, and a, a seat and there's a TV. So this is really cool. And you just don't know any better. So yeah, it, you know, you look back if you get the big leagues and it's a, it's a shithole, but it was, it was the best you had at that point. Yeah, and I'd never played on even on an AstroTurf field until Double A. You know, so I was 24. Yeah, and I mean, I'm you know, when you're playing at JUCO ball in Oklahoma and NAL ball in Oklahoma, you're not playing on many nice fields. You know, I mean, the fields were good; they were all grass. But I never. It wasn't until I got to Double A that I actually got to play on an AstroTurf field. Now these kids are playing AstroTurf from the time they're 10 years old. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. My son just played all last summer on all, all turf, and it's 
Now you got me running through it going, did I, did I play one game in high school on, at Creighton University's field for some reason? That was the only AstroTurf that we had in the area code. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm trying to run through it going, all right, was my first AstroTurf game somewhere in, in, um, in Toronto or where, wherever I went my first right. year? Right. Huh. So in that 30th round, actually, there is some fun uh, <clears throat> to be had. Damien Easley went in that round, two picks after you, pretty good ball player mm-hmm. for a few years, Angels and, and whatnot. And then Deion Sanders later in that round, too. That's a, that's quite a haul for the, uh, the 30th round. <laughs> yeah, we were, I mean, you know, obviously Dion was a uh, two-sport guy. I'm sure they had high hopes for him, and I don't know if they did for me and Damien, but, uh, you know, basically when you're drafted that low, you're viewed as an organizational value guy. Uh, kind of fill a spot in the minor leagues and and uh, you kind of hang around as long as you can. And I know my first full season it, uh, was in Gastonia in 89. And um, Sandy Johnson was the uh, assistant GM of the Rangers. And so he would come down, you know, spring training, whatever. And I'd won the batting title my first full season in the Sally League. And they he goes, who's this fry kid? And he said, oh, yeah, he won the batting title in A-ball. And he says, well, he better freaking win another one or he's gone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just kind of how it was. When you're a, a late-round draft pick, you really can't have a bad year or they'll, they'll move on. Sad but true, yes. Um, God. So did you win a batting title the next year? No. No, and I, <laughs> it was the Florida State League, which was the most difficult league for me to hit in. Uh, the parks were big and the ball didn't seem to carry. I, I did. All right. I hit 272, I think. And, yep. um, but then, uh, you know, I hit 300 and double a and triple a didn't win batting. T- I won a batting title in Venezuela and winter ball. Nice. Yeah. I hit 385 one winter in, in Venezuela. No, I think uh, you, you still have the single season hitting record at, uh, at Southeast Oklahoma. Is that correct? I didn't get 455 one year. Yeah. I, 452 or 455. It's still the record. Uh, oh, can, can, can you take us, take us through how hard it is to hit 455 in any amount of playing time? Because that's literally round, a, a rounding error away from getting a hit every other time you, you bat. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I slumped at the end of the year when we started playing the playoff contending teams. I was actually hitting 500 after 40 games. Unbelievable. And uh, kind of. And then I started paying attention to the school record, you know, and it's like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to hang on to this sucker. And I, I beat it by, you know, a couple, I think it was 455 and the previous record was 452 or something, but that was in 1988 and it's still a record today. Somehow. Was, was Brett Butler the record holder or who was? No, no. A guy named Alan Cartwright. Okay. Who played well, up to triple a, but never made the big leagues. Now, Oli, what was it like facing pests like this in the ninth inning? Because this is a guy, I think, I don't mean to say this in a way that I hope you don't take, but like grinder, gritty, a guy who worked every pitch out of an at-bat. I feel like, Greg, you would hate seeing this guy coming up in the ninth inning. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I didn't like uh, guys that I knew, you know, I was going to have to work in enough to tie him up because if I went away with, with a fastball or, you know, my breaking ball was down more than it was away. Um, 
but I was going to have to work him in enough to keep him from diving out there and, and slicing something into right field, you know, not, or back up the middle. I just knew you had to make good pitches all the way through and he was going to spoil some good pitches. So it was, uh, it was rarely a quick at bat and right. You know that you're going to at some point make a mistake and, and you hope you don't get to that point yet, but he, uh, I think we've, we've faced each other three times and, and, um, I actually remember, you know, facing you. It was it was a pain in the butt. <laughs> you got me out, man. That's all I know. <laughs> so, I, as much as like, so on your Twitter account, you do talk a lot about the modern game and the way it was and all that. I uh, I kind of feel like, in some ways, your skill set might have been appreciated. Maybe not as much now, but in the Moneyball era, like right when you were done playing, was oh two. And that's when they started talking about on-base percentage. I mean, you, you can't ignore a 400 on-base percentage in the minor leagues and a guy who walks more than he strikes out. Um, it's not that I don't think you were appreciated in your time, but I feel like in the time between your time and now, you would have really probably had a better niche to, to be a big leaguer. Is, is, am I missing the mark here? No, and it was just, I mean, the era that we played in, it was guys like me, players like me, your job was to get on base. Your job was to set the table, to, to uh, move runners, be a good situational hitter, and, and let the big boys knock in. I mean, you know, we were discouraged from trying to hit fly balls. And, and you hit, you played with some big boys too. I mean, yeah, I mean, Juan Gonzalez, Jose Canseco. Yeah, if I'm leading off the game or hitting two hole and I'm hitting warning track fly balls with, Juan Gonzalez, Palmero, Will Clark, Dean Palmer, all these guys hitting behind me, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's my job is to get on base. And that's that's what I tried to do the best I could. And I was to have good at bats and and, and not trying to hit home runs. Because I wasn't – when I first came up, I could barely hit a ball out in bat, batting practice. I had to crush the ball to hit it over the fence in batting practice. The balls were a little bit different. The bats were a little bit different. Some of this equipment they have these days, I mean, you see these guys sitting, you know, 20 rows deep in the opposite field gap. Yeah. Nobody did that when we played except the big boys. That's it. Jose Altuve wasn't hitting 20 rows deep in opposite field in Dodger Stadium in 1995, I promise you. <laughs> uh, I, I got to ask you about a specific game. Uh October 3rd, 1992. I, I need to know where you were when David Hulse wouldn't stop hitting foul balls into the same spot of the dugout against the California Angels because uh, you started that game as a leadoff batter. And it's one of my favorite highlights from that time. That's, that's about the time I was learning to love baseball. So it was on like every blooper video my mom would bring home. Um, where were you and what was going on that whole situation there? I was on deck. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> I was, I was. Cause uh, left-handed hitter, he was peeling them off to the, the side that you guys, run. you were probably, they were probably buzzing your tower or not that far off. No, actually. Well, in Anaheim, the visiting dugout is the first base dugout. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I was on deck and, and Holsey to this day is still one of my best friends in the game. 
And uh, we joke about it all the time. He, you know, Halsey was also the center fielder when the ball hit off Canseco's head and went over the fence in Cleveland. <laughs> and, that, and they gave that a home run. Yeah, it was a homer. Uh, it should have been a four-bag error, but yeah. yeah he, said it, he said it hit his glove. <laughs> and we were all laughing at him. Mm. Uh, you're talking about players uh, you played with. I feel like Rusty Greer might be the underrated, most underrated player from those teams. Uh, I feel like he couldn't stay healthy and his career was a little short because of it. But, you know, we talk a lot about Juan Gonzalez and Yvonne Rodriguez and even Jose Canseco. Where does Rusty Greer rank among the hitters you played with as far as either underrated or just outright good? Uh, he's way up there. He's yeah. way up there. Uh, he did, his career was probably not as long um, as it should have been for the, the, the quality of player he was. He had some health issues toward the end. But he played hard. You know, we came up right around the same time. Funny story. Um, we we're playing, I think in, I think it was Detroit and I was, I wasn't playing that day. And one of our outfielders, Odeby McDowell pulled a hamstring and I was standing right next to the manager, Kevin Kennedy and the trainer, Danny Wheat. And as soon as Odeby pulled up running to first, we knew he was not going to be able to play the next day. And so Kevin went to Danny Wheat, the trainer, and says, we need to get somebody called up from AAA. And I was standing right there. And I said, you need to call up Rusty Greer. And he's like, yeah. I was like, because I, I was <laughs> with Rusty wow. AAA before I got there. And I was like, he's the best player in the league. You got to call him up. And they called him up the next day. So I always give Rusty shit about that. I was like, you know, I got you called up to the big league, Rusty. <laughs> Even though eventually we know he would have made it. Yeah. Just a funny side note. Hey, let me ask you, uh, that brings up I mean, this, what ends up happening, brings up a memory. Rumor had it, uh, you guys were scuffling. I don't remember what year it was, but legend had it that Kevin Kennedy called the team meeting and basically said, hey, I'm not worried about myself. I've got, I got a job, you know, tomorrow if I get fired. So you guys are just screwing yourselves by playing this bad. <laughs> Some, somewhere around that uh that motivational talk is that true yeah it was something like that and, and you know that was i'm actually very good friends with kevin kennedy and uh, he was my manager in texas and he made some mistakes and he'll admit that he made some mistakes as the first time big league manager and, and probably said some things to the media that he shouldn't have said and he learned his lesson and he went i played for him in boston yeah and he brought me over there and we loved him in Boston. We, I mean, you know, he's this young guy in his mid thirties, big league manager. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, he's like barely older than the players. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of tough for him. And, but so he, he took some lumps that first go around in Texas, but he really, he became a really good manager in Boston and the players really loved him. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Your... That was, that was a legend that was going around. And I don't know. <laughs> It didn't sound very good. No, no, it didn't sound good. What, what was your favorite kind of manager to play for? I, I, and I'm asking specifically, too, because you played for Johnny Oates, who uh, has since passed away. But did you have a type of manager you gravitated toward, or was it just kind of roll with the punches? Yeah, I mean, it's just you don't really get have much input into what kind of manager you play for. Sure. You're just going to get what you get. And, uh I loved all my managers for whatever reason. And uh, Greg, you probably know Johnny from the Orioles, but yeah. he didn't like me. 
<laughs> wow. He didn't okay. like and, and so huh. when he came over to manage the Rangers in uh, 1995, I believe was his first year. Um, I had just hit 327 the year before. Right. Wow. Rusty and I, Rusty hit like 335 uh, and I hit 327. And I'm like, you know, I'm pretty pumped about going into the next year. I've got a new manager. Johnny calls, calls me up and says, hey, I want you to know that you're still the second baseman. We signed Mark McLemore. He's oh, going to play all over the field, all this stuff. And I was like, all right, you know, I hit 327. I should be the second baseman, I'm thinking. And then like one week into spring training, we hadn't even started playing games yet. Uh, you know, I heard the reporter said, yeah, Johnny said that every position – uh, starting position is secure except second base, which is me, and right field, which was Rusty, who hit 336. And I'm like, well, why did he call me in the offseason and tell me I'm still the second baseman? Did I, I mean, I know I didn't do so poorly the first week of practice that now I'm not the second baseman, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so we kind of butted heads quite a bit. Um, and eventually he, Mac was his boy, and I, I love Mac. We're good friends today, but I was like, Mac, I mean, he's going to put Mac in there over me. There's just not much I can do about it. That's tough. Yeah. He was, uh, Mac was with us in Baltimore. So that's where that past mm -hmm. history went to. And, and Mac came over, might've been 93 and, you know, played a little bit of everywhere and, and was a solid, you know, solid defender. Offense came a little bit later on, I think, but mm -hmm. at, uh, that's kind of the problem, you know, it, it's short memories and um, sorry to hear that, you know, that that's kind of all right. I mean, I made most of it, but you know, I, yeah. Kevin Kennedy, I really liked playing for when I was in Boston, I was a, uh, you know, a ground ball line drive type hitter. So I really liked the hit and run. That was my bread and butter. Okay. I'm going to hit ground ball. So if you got runners on first, first and second, first, and third, I'm a double play possibility because I'm going to hit ground more ground balls and fly balls so and I could make contact so I went to Kevin and I said would you allow me to put on my own hit and run would you trust me enough to have a wow. sign with the first baseman I mean the runner on first to give my own sign I said I'll, I'll pick the right situations and so you got to th think about the trust he had to put in me because if it doesn't work nobody knows that I put it on they think he screwed up yeah. Right. So he let me do it. In can you tell us? Can you tell us what that sign was? Yeah, I would like. Uh, I would just put my hand on top of my helmet. No, no, I would. I would actually grab my cup, which I, you know, unfortunately, I was doing that almost every every pitch anyway, <laughs> adjusting my cup. Yeah. But I would grab my cup and look down the first base, and a lot most of the times it was Darren Bragg who was on first, and he would just touch the top of his helmet means he's got it yep and i guarantee in 1996 i did it 30 times successfully did you really wow. I, I mean so many times and you know but the one time i accidentally grabbed my cup and didn't realize it and braggy went i was like oh shit <laughs> and he got thrown out and then it was like hey wait a minute we can't be, we can't be messing up like this what uh okay so was that was under kevin yeah who uh, did, did he take credit for these great plays? I mean, they obviously couldn't no. say that you did it. No, he gives me credit for that because 
and I, and I went over the situation with Johnny uh, was in 95, the Rangers non-tendered me after the season. I was arbitration eligible. Okay. So they didn't tender me. So I became a free agent. I went to spring training with the Tigers. Um, they had to put me on the roster by a certain date. They weren't ready to do that. I really didn't have a good spring training. And so this, wait, 96, 96, Detroit. Yeah. Just spring training though. Yeah. Cause I was going to say I was, I was in Detroit in 96. I was like going, I would play with you. All right. Go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. And so, uh, so I left, they wanted me to stay. They had, you know, those deals you got, your agent puts it in your contract that you have to be on the roster by a certain day to give him a little time to find you another job if they don't put you on the roster. And so they did, they weren't ready to do it. Buddy Bell wanted me to stay. I was like, man, I got to go. So I went back to Oklahoma city, AAA, and Johnny was not going to call me up to the big leagues. It didn't matter what I did. I mean, they had injuries at second base. They called up Lou Frazier, who was an outfielder to play second base. They called up Rene Gonzalez. Yeah. I think you probably play with Rene. I love him too, but there was no way they were calling me up. Right. And so I get an opportunity. I have a, a clause in my contract to, uh, if another team wants to call me to the big leagues, they can. Um, and so that's how I got over to the Red Sox in 96 with Kevin Kennedy as the manager. Uh, your, uh, your story sounds extremely familiar. Um, my same thing in 95 coming to Cleveland. I had a chance to go to Boston or Baltimore and Cleveland called me up and, uh, Hargrove didn't like me and I sat around for a couple of weeks and became pretty much useless to the, to anybody. So, yeah. Well, and it, it's, a, it's a shame that the, uh, Macklemore wasn't ever going to break through in Baltimore at short. I think you guys kind of had a guy over there, so he, <laughs> he had to move on too. Uh, but yeah, what, what happened though? I want to backtrack just a little bit. What cost you your 1993 season? Cause you came up, got plenty of time in 92 and then didn't play again until 94, um, obviously due to injury. But uh, what happened there? I, I tore my ACL playing basketball. So in, yeah. in the offseason, assumed. Yeah. yeah, I was playing with uh, – we used to play all the time in this gym right down the street from the ballpark. I was playing with Kenny Rogers, Darren <laughs> Oliver, Rick Helling. And, you know, remember I told you I went to college to play basketball. And so I was pretty good. And we were just schooling these guys and they got pissed off. And I went up for a layup and this dude just took me out and I came down awkwardly and landed on my leg and it popped. It felt like it popped out of, out of socket. And I didn't know what happened. I kind of limped off the court, went home, scared to death and, uh, you know, got some ice on the way home. And it's like the next morning I was praying it was okay. And it was just swollen so bad and so I called the Rangers the team doctor said man I had to come up with a story now I couldn't tell him I was playing basketball so I said yeah I was you know doing some jogging last night (laughs) around the neighborhood and I went to step off the the curb and twisted my knee so I need to come in and have it checked out and I went in and uh, found out I got an MRI and found out I had a torn ACL out for the whole year wow Rick, uh, anybody, Rick, Rick I, I wanted to find out if anybody, uh, anybody took care of the guy that, that took you out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the I don't know, man. They barely waited till I got off the court before they kept playing. But, but funny, the funny 
part of it, the whole story is that Tom Grieve was the GM of the Rangers then. Okay. And then years later, I'm playing um, for the Blue Jays in 2001. Tom Grieve's doing TV stuff for the Rangers. And so we're playing the Rangers and all my friends are saying, you got, do you know that every time you guys play the Rangers, Tom Grieve talks about how you hurt your knee jogging? I was like, does he really? He's like, yeah, he does. So finally I went up to him around the batting cage. And I was like, Tom, I said, when are you going to stop talking about how I hurt my knee? He goes, when you tell me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, I hurt my knee playing basketball. I said, but I, I, how could I possibly tell you guys that? He goes, no, I understand. He goes, I'll never mention it again. Oh, that's funny. And uh, then, Yeah, that was um... – that was another, I mean, I've, I'm just kind of laughing at the similarities of our, you know, you, uh, we had our basketball in the off season in Baltimore and it was, you know, the Ripken brothers and Orsalak and, and whoever else was in town, Larry Sheets. And we got, we were playing at an elementary school at night, you know, two or three times a week. And it was getting, it was getting heated and, and, nasty and, and somebody got wiped out on a layup and didn't blow their ACL out. But Ripken took it upon himself to build a gym on the side of his house. And that ended us playing in public ever again before something right. like your great get your game happened. I mean, you sit there and you look at it and you're going, you have a conversation with somebody normal and it's disbelief that it would actually be an event that we would be playing basketball in public and let alone somebody get a little miffed about something and wipe you out with a career in jeopardy. But there's two stories right here that, yes, that is actually the way it was. That's mm -hmm. the way it always happened. And finally, I was thankful that Ripken built the gym because it was like he controlled whoever came into the game, never had anything again like that. But I'm sorry, that uh, that's a brutal way to lose a season. It was. And it and I, I played with uh, Billy in yeah. Texas. So he told me stories about the basketball and stuff. And, and we used to also go, uh, Bobby Witt had a place in Colleyville. So we'd go play on the weekends at his house. And I mean, Incavilia was there, Kenny Rogers, all of us were over there. We're just athletes, man. We're just wanting to compete and play. You yeah. weren't thinking about getting hurt, but we never thought about getting hurt. Some of the stuff we did, but I know one thing, you did not drive the lane with Pete and Cavillia playing. Cause he would let you know <laughs> that he will lay you out. <laughs> I, I love the name drop of Rick Helling. I grew up a Rick Helling fan cause he's from Fargo and I'm from Northwestern Minnesota. So, um, and then when I was covering the twins, he would show up at target field with his role with, I think the MLBPA or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, he and Darren Erstad were guys I was pretty big fans of. And then Travis Hafner. So uh, North Dakota, not much going on in that state, but, they have produced some big leaguers. Oh yeah. That Roger Maris guy was pretty good too, but uh, <laughs> yeah, not much going on in North Dakota, but I, I love the Rick Helling reference. Yeah. yeah uh, we were teammates for a few years. Yeah. All right. I got to ask Jeff, uh, you had, <laughs> I'm going to guess two years with Nolan Ryan. 92 and 93. Yeah, because I, uh, I mean, 93, we were teammates, but I was on the, the DL yeah. the whole time. What was, what was he like? I mean, he was my favorite. He was, you know. Uh, he was awesome. He, he uh, you know, it was just 
I mean, he's in his like 26th year in the big leagues, you know, and I'm a rookie. And I'm like, look at this guy. He's like, I used to imitate this guy playing wiffle ball and all this stuff, but he was just a country boy, just down to earth. And he had a really good sense of humor, good sense of humor. And, and I'll tell you a funny story. So I'm four months after, out of ACL reconstruction and Nolan is going to throw a simulated game. And so normally uh, you know how those simulated game things go. Nobody's volunteering to hit oh, yeah, no. a simulated game. <laughs> you are basically appointed. You're the fourth outfielder you're hitting. You're the utility infielder. You're the backup catcher. You guys are hitting. Be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock to face Nolan or whoever. And so I was sitting there, and I said, can I come? You know, I just wanted to say I got to hit off Nolan because I'd never got to hit off him before. And they said, sure, show up. So here I am with my big knee break. I mean, four months at ACL, that's not, I'm not a hundred percent yet. And so I get in there and, and there's no fielders or whatever. And there's just a coach standing around and he throws a pitch. And if you hit it, they determine whether or not they think it would have been a hit or an out. Right. So I hit a line drive, sinking line drive to left field, my first at bat. And they're right. All right, base hit, runner on first. And Nolan kind of walks down and he goes, that's a base hit. He goes, well, hell, no wonder you hit 400 in Venezuela if that's a base hit. <laughs> <laughs> and then he proceeded to jam me to like the next five times uh, right on my knuckles. And, he, and so anytime anybody was – John Russell was in there too. And he so he'd jam Russell or jam another guy. And he goes, you been working with Fry? <laughs> it was a man it was awesome playing with no oh, what uh, what happened in 98 that caused you to miss the season as well rundown drill first and third pickoffs <laughs> and rundowns and um i'm playing second so the runner from oh, first God. breaks early the pitcher steps off i come up gives me the ball you know my job is to run the runner back and all of a sudden, the runner at third is halfway home. So I run across the entire infield. And the, my, you know, I'm supposed to cut him back toward third base, right? So I go to cut him back, and he spins. He does this fake juke and spins around backwards, goofing off. And I, just as I went to cut, my knee just exploded because I didn't really couldn't tell which way he was going. And it just went, and it sounded like, three chicken bones breaking mm. and it was just done. And I was, you know, just signed a three-year contract supposed to be the leadoff hitter and starting second baseman for the Red Sox. And now I'm out for the whole year. Wow. Did anybody ever tell you if you didn't have any lu- bad luck, you had no <laughs> luck at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, thank goodness I signed that contract, but yeah. And then I had to, you know, then I had to just bust my butt to find my way back. Because uh, when you're getting older and you start having those injuries, man, and they get, you know, they're finding a replacement for you, you got to find your way back in there. So, well, and you got to play with or be near for those seasons, uh, Pedro Martinez, who is absolutely unbelievable. What was it like to have a front row seat? Um, you know, people talk about his, uh, it's, it's either 99 and 2000 or 98 and 99 as one of the better two year runs that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, I would just remember I'm playing second and, and Nomar's playing short and, and 
we didn't have to do much out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Striking guys out. And I'm looking over at Nomar, you know, to give him the signs. It's infielders, you know, you, you relay the signs who's going to cover the base. And I look over at Nomar and he gives me the sign. I look over me, he's yawning. I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you, are you bored out here or whatever? And he, basically, I just keep turning around and going, all right, how many strikeouts are up there? One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. It was, you know, we expected to win every game he pitched. Yeah, I feel like Nomar's injuries really robbed him of us having, you know, A-Rod, Jeter, and Nomar being a, an incredible trifecta at the position. I mean, that, that was, in some ways, people would say the golden age of shortstops. I know they had that that goofy picture with them all with their shirts off, and I think uh, I think Edgar Renteria was in there too. But, um, yeah, when you think in Nomar's career, I'm sure it kind of feels like there were some missed opportunities there. But what a phenomenally talented player. Uh, any good stories about Nomar? Oh yeah, it, it and he's even, he's an even better guy than he was a player. You and wow. he is the most humble guy. Um, yeah, but he was. I mean, he was. He had a lot of. He had a lot of little superstition things he did. You know, kind of kind of goofy. But uh, we didn't mess with him. His glove. He said a certain way. He, he had his. He didn't. It could be 110 degrees out, and he's going to bring his jacket down. And set it on the bench in the same spot every day. Like, you're not going to need your jacket today no more. It's 110 in Texas. <laughs> he had these rituals that he did. Uh, but what a phenomenal player. And, I mean, in my mind, he was better than everybody at that time. Until he got hurt. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, this guy was 200 hits, 30 homers, 100 yeah. RBIs, 30 from the leadoff spot. Yeah. You know, and it didn't yeah, matter. Yeah. And I've never seen a hitter. Uh, I played with some great hitters, but I've never seen anybody like him. He could go up there and hit the first pitch, anything, like he knew it was coming. You could start really? him off with a get me over breaking ball, first pitch of the game, and he would rifle it off the green monster where 99% of guys are going to take that for the first pitch of the game. Huh. That's interesting. Wow. Who would uh, who would be one guy? I'm thinking. Okay, you know, we're talking about the '98 season. That was McGuire Sosa. Um, obviously, wrong league for you, but I wish it was the other league when I was there. Um, <laughs> who would uh, who would who would you actually just spend time in batting and, and watch batting practice? Who would you who would you you know deliberately sit in the dugout for an extra ten minutes and, and watch BP? Griffey, definitely Griffey. Um, Frank Thomas, I really liked watching uh, Paul Mulder. Yeah, that's my guy. Guys like that. Um, I mean, and I had a lot of those guys that I like to watch on my team. I was fortunate to, you know, have, let me think of some of the guys I got to play with. You got Juan Gonzalez, you know, had 160 RBIs one year. Palmero <laughs> hit 500 homers. Will Clark. Mo Vaughn, Nomar, uh, Todd Helton, Larry yeah. Walker, Carlos Delgado. Wow. I mean, so a lot of these guys on my own team, I at Conseco, I just sat there and marvel at these guys going, God, I wish I could do that stuff. But I, you know, with their 6'4, 225, and I'm 5'9, 160, um, that's swinging up and trying to hit homers, you know, that wasn't in the cards for me. I, I heard Jay Buhner had pretty good batting practice too. Yeah. Edgar, Edgar was always fun. 
He was a machine. Yeah, just, just machine. The guys like that make Julio Franco was impressive too. He could hit the ball harder to the right side than most left-handed pull hitters could hit it. Well, you didn't want to be on the infield during batting practice when those guys were hitting. You'd go to the outfield, <laughs> get your ground balls early because you didn't want to have your fungo hitter not time one right and the ball's on the way and oh, just, oh, yeah. you got a rocket coming out. You could hear the ball going by. Oh, I know. I, I, I ended up at about 57, 58, you know, 55 to 57 feet away from them as they're making contact. So, yeah. yeah I, that's I, scary. Scary, man. A couple of those guys, yeah, I was like, okay, you know what? You're not getting a fastball away because you might hit it back up the box and I will not survive. <laughs> yeah. Could have had a yeah. fatality on the mound there. Uh, Jeff, when, when I think about MLB and when I started watching it, you know, 92, 93 to – the late nineties, like the game changed just so much. And Greg, I, to the extent that you haven't answered this before too, I'd like to hear from you. What did you feel like the evolution of the game was like? Because if you watch a game, like you go on YouTube and watch like a, there's a, I, like I watched a 1993 twins and white Sox game at the end of at the end of 93. So Kirby Puckett and Frank Thomas and all that. But then if you go watch a game from 1999, where maybe Oli's pitching with the diamondbacks or something, uh, it looks like you're watching completely different sports. It, it evolved a lot. And I know it's evolved a lot recently too, but specifically in the nineties, how did you see the game evolving in front of your own eyes? Go ahead, Jeff. Well, for me, it was just that mm -hmm. I think we, we started relying more on the home run, mm -hmm. you know, and I know, you know, one of the greatest managers in history, Earl Weaver, man, he, he was waiting <laughs> for that three run homer, right? But, yep. you know, it was I think earlier when I came up, it was more we had to try and manufacture runs. I mean, it was your job. If you came up and nobody out and run on second, you had one job to do. Get him to third. Right. Yeah. Except, I mean, basically everybody in the lineup except the three, four and five hitters. And even those guys back then would try and hit the ball the other way and try and move. Just try to keep the line moving, keep the. You know, let's play situational baseball. Whatever the game presents itself, uh, Juan Gonzalez can drive a ball to right field as good as anybody. You know, all he's got to do is go up there and think about doing it. Yeah. And, and, and so I think later on is when we started getting into a situation where, especially where we are today, it's like we're not going to worry about moving that guy over. We're going to try and drive him in. And I think the game has, is suffering because of that. You know, it's funny because, I, I mean, I'm sitting there and we go back to, you know, the teams you played with in, in Texas, and you had as good a lineup and bombers as almost anything that's available today. You know, I, I run through your lineup and Juan gone. You had Canseco a little bit later, uh, Pudge, Palmer. You had Palmero or either Clark, one of those other two, you know, swapped, they swapped in and out. Um, I mean, your lineup in Greer – who hit 30 bombs a couple of years, it was a frightening lineup. And you, you, you're sitting there talking about these guys getting the runners over. It's, I, it brought back the thoughts of, you know, now I'm playing the game and going, okay, I got a runner on second base. I need to pitch. I, you know, I know you're going to try to go the other way. So now I need to pitch you in. And that used to be the game. And now it's like, you're sitting there watching it and going, there's no concept of, where I'm trying to pitch a guy in relation to who's on base and where, um, you know, I, I was sitting there watching one of the World Series games and laughing that 
there's a shift on the whole, the whole team's on the right side of the infield and they got a left-handed hitter up and they're throwing in two seamers down and away. And, and it's just like, and then finally Bellinger or somebody like that plays baseball and slices one through a hole. And I'm going, um, it's playoff baseball. Now it's important, but we would never have done that in the nineties because you guys would have just, yeah, you know what? That's fine. I'll take my single over here yep. and let's play baseball. Yeah. You know, that was the difficult part of, of exactly what you mentioned. I knew when I came up with a runner on second base and a right-handed pitcher, no outs. I knew that guy was going to pitch me in. Yeah. So I had to adjust. I would move off the plate to try and turn, you know, the inside part of the plate to the middle of the plate. Cause I knew he was going to bust me in. Cause he did not want, he wanted me to roll over one to third base. Yeah. And I was trying to avoid that. Oh, it was, I mean, yeah. it was a great game because it yeah, was like cat and mouse. We're thinking with each other, you know? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that was just different. I, I missed that part of it. Cause I see exactly what you see. Um, yeah, you got a guy, right-handed hitters, and I don't even I won't even name anybody specifically, but you got a runner on second base and no outs. You got three guys to the left of second, the first baseman's close to the line, and this guy is not even thinking about hitting the ball to the right side. He could hit an 80 hopper through the hole, yep. and but he's not even considering it. And I think it's because they're told not to worry about it. I, I think they're, well, I mean, they, they're devaluing the walk. They devalue the single, you know, it's all about doubles, home runs. Um, I kind of want to, I want to take this line of question a little bit different. And Nolan was the end of an era. I feel like him and Clemens were the end of the eras of how the game was played, which meant the self-policing, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, distinctly remember Clemens, I think it was 95, 96. I'm with Detroit. He's got a shutout and our guy takes second base, you know, defensive indifference. It's five to nothing. And our guy walks into second base in the ninth inning. You know, he's got a shutout. And I remember he was just steaming. He was getting ready to clean somebody's clock going, okay, you guys aren't playing right. Mm-hmm. And those were the like the last two guys of where – the error ended of the game being self-policed agree disagree no i agree and i I hate i think it's bad for the game because you know once the uh the umpires were told to start warning um pitchers you know that there might be some retaliation i think the game has suffered because of it because you know what are you going to warn me you're going to warn our team in the first inning um that we can't pitch inside yeah that screws up the whole – maybe he's the guy who throw, runs the ball in on guys. Now he's going to be afraid. He might accidentally hit somebody and get ejected because of something that happened the day before. And it was just – when they allowed us to police it, we did it. We handled it. And i never forget when I was in Boston and playing the White Sox and they hit John Valentin accidentally in the wrist, broke his wrist. Yeah. Right? Didn't matter that it wasn't on purpose you hit one of our studs and we're going to get one of your guys now. And I went up to John Wasden, uh, who was new to our team. And I was like, man, this is a great opportunity for this guy to earn some respect of his teammates, you know? And I said, Hey, I didn't even know who was coming up. It didn't matter. I said, you get the first two guys out, smoke the next dude. He goes, all right. 
and you know, when you do that, you don't always know if somebody's going to fall through, you know, some guys yeah. just don't like to hit guys and you can tell because if they throw one five feet behind them uh, and don't even get close, you know, that guy's afraid to hit somebody, right? Cause the guy, <laughs> the professionals know how to hit somebody. And so yeah. you get two outs and here comes Ron Karkovice, backup catcher, nicest guy in the freaking world, <laughs> you know? And I'm like second base. I'm like, damn, it's Karkovice. Why does it have to be him? Why can't it be somebody else? Sure enough, first pitch, he smokes him right in the ribs. He hit him so flush that the ball fell straight down. And Karkovice just went, ugh, and took his bat and tossed it to on-deck circle and went to first base, and it was over. Yeah, the game was clean. Yeah. And, you know, it was like nothing ever happened. You got our guy. We got yours. Let's move on and play baseball. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, that was that was that was it. That's that's that part of it's all gone, too. Yeah. Um, hmm. I remember Nolan, uh, we were playing the Royals and Willie Wilson tried to drag bunt. Oh, God. Nolan. You know, Nolan's like 46 years old and Willie tries to drag bunt and and Nolan kind of glares at him, and Willie's like, what? I can't bunt on you? And, and Nolan freaking threw one up and in on him next pitch, and Willie never tried to bunt anymore after that. That brings I, – I don't know. It had to be 90, 92, 93. We got a day game in Texas. And I had never – I mean, you know, I knew Nolan was getting to the end of the road, and, and I'm – so I'm sitting in the dugout in the old in the old Texas stadium and Nolan's starting the game and it's a day game. It's like it's got to be late April because no more day games after May. Um, but Nolan's it's like a Wednesday or something. Nolan starts out single walk, three run bomb. We're up three nothing. Nobody out in the first. He hits Mike Devereaux's batting fourth in the middle of the back ball <laughs> drops straight down. You, I mean, Devo, Devo wasn't breathing for another five minutes just because <laughs> the air was just completely gone. And I just sat in the dugout and I was like going, he so did that on purpose. <laughs> and I was like, we didn't get another hit. We lost four to three. <laughs> and I was just I was sitting in the dugout going, that's just, that really works. You can't, I mean, only no one could do that. Right. At that point. But that was the way the game was. It was like going, yeah, you guys are a little too comfortable today here. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like back in the day when you got uh, Don Drysdale and and and, and uh, Gibson. I mean, you those just want to hit you, man. You're getting out of the way. <laughs> it's not, and you wouldn't say anything either. Well, Gibson, yeah. Gibson's Gibson's an Omaha boy. Um, and so I'd play in his golf tournament and, and I just, I just wanted to sit around and listen to him talk baseball. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he got, he sat down with me one point and he goes, you know, he goes, every thought I was the nastiest son of a bitch that, that, that played. He goes, Drysdale was so much worse than I was. <laughs> and then he, and then he goes, but if I threw you a fastball down and away and you laced it into right field, you know, nice piece of hit. And he goes, you weren't supposed to do that. That's my side of the plate. The next time you came up, I hit you and you stay on your half of the plate and the other half is mine. <laughs> and he goes, and that was just the way it was. And I was just looking at him going, man, I couldn't even imagine trying to do that in the 1990s of, oh, uh, you know, a fastball down and away. You, you, you do a nice job of diving out and hitting something to right field. And then the next time you come up, I smoke you in the ribs. Yeah. No, how, how, I'm glad how, we didn't experience that. Cause that, 
I mean, the right side of the plate was my side. I couldn't handle the inside. <laughs> I was, I'd have been backwards. I'd have been getting smoked all the time. Well, and I think they gave guys nicknames like uh, Sal Magley was the barber. And I think it was because he buzzed people. <laughs> I think yeah. that was the, that was a nickname. It was just the way the game worked back then. Well, Pedro Martinez was pretty famous for doing that stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, I played with Pedro and, and I, 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 a story real quick is we're in Oakland and I think it was Wakefield or Chris Hammond, somebody who didn't throw hard threw a pitch and Olmedo sign stuck his knee out almost over the plate and got hit. He, I mean, he obviously got hit on purpose. And so Pedro was in the dugout and he goes, you want to get hit? He goes, all right. Cause Pedro was starting the next day. Oh, <laughs> so sure enough, first inning, Olmedo signs comes up there right between the numbers smoking first day first inning (laughs) well pedro and precision go hand in hand so that's yeah uh, and but it was an art back then and i think um you know you kept it away from guys heads yeah and you you know kept it below the shoulders and try usually above the knees and and you know it was you had to be professional about it i mean and because you could really hurt somebody getting hit in the freaking head so the guys Mm -hmm back then knew how to do it. And I don't think guys today know how to do it because when they throw a hundred miles an hour with no command and throw it guys heads, it's pretty scary. What, um, to shift gears just a little bit, you know, you, you had a lot of varied experiences in terms of playing all over. Some days you're starting, some days you're not some seasons you're starting some seasons. You're more of a utility guy. What was your mental preparation like? And was it different based on your role or did you just keep yourself up and ready to go, whether you were coming off the bench or you were starting at shortstop or second base or whatever. I mean, is it hard to keep yourself up for all those different things or are you just on all the time? No, it's tough. It's tough coming off the bench. I mean, you go to the field every day, hoping you're in the lineup, you know, unless you're in a slump, then you're hoping you're not in the lineup. Um, (laughs) Basically you go to the field every day, hoping to see your name on that lineup card. And it's a different preparation when you're in the lineup as opposed to when you're not um but you just try to stay ready on the bench you know you kind of look for the situations where um you might get used and and that's having a an experienced bench coach or a hitting coach is is great in those situations because he's looking ahead said hey maybe next inning this spot in the lineup's coming up you might get used so get loose so they give you a little bit of heads up but I mean, as a bench guy, you got to kind of almost have be on all the time. Yeah. At least mentally, you, know, you can't be goofing off. You got to at least mentally be in the game to know if you get called in there, you know, what you need to do. I had a real quick, I had a situation uh, when I was playing for the Rockies. Um, we're playing, I played one game in St. Louis my entire career and it was a makeup game. And so we go to St. Louis for a day game and it's late in the game and it's a Mike Timlin's pitching stone like 96. He's in the sun. The mound is in the sun mm-hmm. and home plate is in the shade, right? Which it's tough for hitters to pick up the spin on the ball in those situations. Okay. And so now we're down by a run and Clint hurdles, a hitting coach. He tells Butch Husky to get ready and a left-handed hitter to get ready. And I'm on the bench too. And I'm sitting over there. Okay. You know, I'm just leaning on the top, you know, the bar in front of the dugout, whatever. And 
somebody gets on base and all of a sudden they go, Fry, you're hitting. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, I don't have my bat, my batting gloves, my helmet. I'm not on deck. I'm up now. So I got to run over there, grab my stuff, bam, bam, batting gloves. I'm in the batter's box. I look down there, bunt, first pitch bunt, right? So he throws a fastball up and away for a ball. Next pitch, hit and run. He throws me a shoulder high, 96 mile an hour fastball on a hit and run. And I freaking tomahawked it and smoked a line drive to right center field. And, you know, I'm thinking, I did a hell of a job right there. I just freaking crushed this ball. Dunstan, not being an outfielder, runs in and realizes he misjudged it, jumps about eight feet in the friggin' air and catches it to rob me of a hit. And the guy goes back to first. So I'm going back to the dugout thinking, I did a pretty good job right there. I mean, that was a tough pitch. And all of a sudden I hear Buddy Bell, the manager, going, hit the ball on the damn ground. And I'm like, <laughs> Jesus, it's like, first off, you gave me like 12 seconds to get ready to hit off this guy throwing 96, and I smoke a line drive like that, and you're yelling at me for not hitting it on the ground? I was pissed off. Oh, yeah. man, I was so mad. Uh, well, um, before we let you go, because I know Oli's got to get out of here pretty quick, I got to ask you, 16 big league home runs, do you have one that really stands out in your memory as the one you're most proud of or, or love to tell the story about? Um, well, I know my first home run was in Camden Yards off of Mr. Arthur Rhodes. Ooh. Nice. And I saw Arthur two weeks ago at a golf tournament. I reminded him of it. As uh, you should, as one does. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. The next AB, I hit a double. And the third AB, he tried to hit me. <laughs> well, yeah, probably had Sutcliffe sitting in the dugout going, look, you know what? You, you just need to wipe him out one at bat. And let's see if we can reset his, you know. Oh, no Reset doubt. his memory. His mojo. No doubt. Probably, uh, probably my most memorable home run was uh, I hit a walk-off home run, home run off Mike Trombley nice. uh, in Fenway. And I'd, I'd – uh, Was he on the Twins then? Yes, yes. Yep. It, was, yep. it was unusual because Darren Lewis, who's not a home run hitter, in the ninth inning we're down by one, hits a home run to tie the game. And I come wow. up next, and I'm not a home run hitter, and I hit a walk-off home run to go four for five that day with a walk-off. Wow. So that was a pretty good day. Well, Oli looks like he's out of time. I think we're running yeah. behind a little bit here. But uh, next time we have you on, if we can do that, I'll have to ask you about hitting for the cycle against Darren Oliver and then representing him later in his career. But uh, thank you so much <laughs> nice. for, for making time for us. Thanks, Jeff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, great. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you guys having me on here. So again, big, big thanks. I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll be following you on Twitter. You're uh, an entertaining follow. Appreciate you um, trying to get the game back to normal. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I'm actually starting a campaign with a guy in a little while called uh, Save the Game. So we got a lot of people involved in it. So I'll let you, you know about it. You, you yeah, still got to get me unblocked by Marvin Freeman, by the way. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I must have just been an ass and he called me out on it, but it's fair. Anyway, Marv, uh, Marv can be temperamental. So I don't, I don't, I've never even met him in person. So I don't really know. Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, I probably had it coming. But anyway, uh, for Mr. Fry, you can follow him on Twitter, O3J Fry. And for Greg Olson, this is Brandon Warren signing off saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. We'll catch you next week. Peace. Sweet. <laughs>